Well, praise the Lord, everybody. I am Evangelist Janice Nelson, and I want to welcome you to season three of Broken Vessels Mended and Whole, a weekly women's Bible study podcast. Today is Sabbath Sunday, October 30th, the year of our Lord, 2022. In this Bible study podcast, we address various issues that break the spirit of women and then seek to promote women's spiritual wholeness and well-being with lessons learned from the Word of God. Ladies, let's pray. Our God and our Father, we bow our heads and humble ourselves before your throne of mercy and of grace. As we begin our Bible study, we ask you to join us in the study of your Word. Anoint my lips of clay so that your Word goes forth in spirit and in truth. Hide me behind the shadow of your cross so that you only are seen and heard in this Bible study. Will you bind the powers of the spirit of darkness so that not one evil deed is met against this ministry or these your people? Bless each person within the sound of my voice and be ye glorified. In the name of Jesus Christ, we ask all of these things and give you thanks even now in advance for answered prayer counted as done by faith and in accordance to your word. Amen. Ladies, today we continue our Bible study on the book of Ezekiel. This is a book that many women may not want to read. First, because it is a difficult book to read. And second, because many women identify Ezekiel as a misogynist, meaning someone who despises or is strongly prejudiced against women. They have arrived at this conclusion based on the sexually explicit imagery in several chapters of the book of Ezekiel, particularly in chapters 16 and 23, where some of the imagery is violent and abusive against women. It's going to take us quite a bit of time to work our way through the entire book of Ezekiel, but I hope you will hang in there with me as we work our way through this interesting text, because there is more to Ezekiel's sexually violent imagery than that which first meets the eye. And I fully recognize that this text and its long history of interpretation has done some serious and irrevocable harm to women. But we must still question what drove Ezekiel to write such sexually violent imagery. What were the historical, sociological, and cultural forces in play at the time of Ezekiel's writing that makes these images symbolically and rhetorically powerful today? When we come back, we're going to continue our study on the book of Ezekiel, examining texts from Ezekiel chapter 16, titled God's Unfaithful Bride, part one. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Broken Vessels, Mended and Whole. Today, we continue our Bible study on the book of Ezekiel, examining text from Ezekiel chapter 16, titled God's Unfaithful Bride, Part 1. Now, I, I do not usually read all of the verses of the chapter because they are rather long, but I will delve into the scriptures more deeply 
um, as we study chapters 16 and 23, because I think it's important for women to understand why so many of us view Ezekiel as someone who despises or is strongly prejudiced against women. And when I quote scriptures, I will either read from the King James Version or the New Revised Standard Version of the Bible. Ladies, in Ezekiel chapters one through seven, God made known to Ezekiel the prophet his intent to judge Jerusalem, the land, and the inhabitants of Israel. In Ezekiel chapters eight through 11, God revealed the abominations of Jerusalem to Ezekiel and made the prophet an eyewitness to his charge. Arguments against intercession in Ezekiel chapters 12 through 15 prevented any intervention on behalf of the city and established Ezekiel as the only prophet to speak for God. Now, in Ezekiel chapter 16, the longest chapter in the book of Ezekiel, God begins to publicize his case against Jerusalem. What God already knew and what Ezekiel learned is now fully revealed as God commands Ezekiel to, quote, make known to Jerusalem her abominations, end quote. That's in verse two of chapter 16. The word abominations is used extensively in chapter 16, and it appears here for the first time in conjunction with God's command to Ezekiel to declare publicly Jerusalem's crimes. It occurs four more times in chapters 17 through 23, which suggests that these chapters form the heart of God's announcement of judgment against Jerusalem and its inhabitants. You might also read Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 4 and 11, uh, chapter 22, verses 2 and 26, and chapter 23, verse 36. The core of God's formal accusation of Jerusalem is centered around an elaborately developed metaphor of Jerusalem as God's wife in Ezekiel chapters 16 and 23. Chapter 16 lays the groundwork for this metaphor, describing Jerusalem as a rejected foundling child who God adopts and then marries when she reaches the age of sexual maturity. In return, Jerusalem squanders the honor and beauty that God has bestowed on her. She, that would be Jerusalem, gives the gifts that God has given her to her many lovers, and she falls into deeper degradation. God is shamed by his wife's behavior and seeks to vindicate his honor by subjecting Jerusalem to legally prescribed punishment of public exposure and execution. Ironically, the cruelty at and ironically and cruelly at the hands of her faithless lovers. These are the foreign nations that surround Jerusalem and with whom she enters into alliances with. Ezekiel chapter 16 is 63 verses long. Today, we unpack verses 1 through 14. Ladies, Ezekiel chapter 14 is an offensive text to many in the first century or was an offensive text to many in the first century because it called um, Israel's 
honorable genealogy into question. Ezekiel 16, uh, chapter 16, verse three says, thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem, your origin and your birth were in the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. This was true in God's promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, verses one through three. And when Israel as a nation returned to the land of Israel in the days of Joshua, when Israel was occupied by Canaanite tribes like the Amorites and the Hittites. And this is important to understand because the term Canaanite is a byword for decadence. And this was Israel's beginning. This account of Jerusalem's origin is historically accurate because Jerusalem remained in Canaanite hands until well after the conquest and did not become an Israelite possession until the time of David. You can see 2 Samuel chapter 5 for more on this. The Christian clergyman Warren Worsby said, that during the reign of King David and during Solomon's early years, Jerusalem was indeed a queenly city and Israel a prosperous kingdom. As long as Israel, Jehovah's wife, obeyed his word and kept his covenant, he blessed her abundantly just as he promised. He gave her healthy children, fruitful flocks and herds, abundant harvest and protection from disease, disaster and invasion. Elsewhere in the Bible, the term Canaanite is used to designate Israel's enemies. Today, Ezekiel chapter 16 presents other challenges because the patriarchal perspective is offensive to feminist readers and because of the use of the familiar uh, metaphor to define Jerusalem's relationship to God. The metaphor of Jerusalem as an infant dependent on the care of God as her foster parent depicts a more intimate dimension of God's relationship with his people. Chapter 16, Ezekiel chapter 16, goes on um, to be, uh, begins with the formal accusation that resembles a folktale in its depiction of Jerusalem's humble beginnings. Verse 3 through 15 asserts that all of Jerusalem's beauty and wealth came from God. She was abandoned at birth by her Hittite father and Amorite mother, and she was adopted by God who married her when she reached the age of sexual maturity. In verses 4 through 7, God says to Jerusalem, as for your birth, on the day you were born, your navel cord was not cut, nor were you washed with waters to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in cloth. Your, uh, no eye pitied you to do any of these things for you out of compassion for you. So nobody cared. God goes on to say, but you were thrown out in the open field for you were abhorred on the day you were born. He says, I passed by you and saw you flailing about in your blood. The metaphor uses, uh, used is right, after, is, is right after birth. God says, as you lay in your blood, I said to you, live and grow up like a plant of the field. 
Then he says, you grew up and became tall and arrived at full womanhood. Your breasts were formed and your hair had grown, yet you were naked and bare. Verses four through seven describes the transfer of legal responsibility from Jerusalem's natural parents to God. The parents had renounced their their legal claim in several distinct and culturally identifiable ways, beginning with their failure to care for her at birth in verse 4. These acts were crucial for the survival of the newborn. Talmudic rabbis permit, permitted the, them even on the Sabbath. The Bible says her navel was not cut. She was not washed or rubbed with salt, and she was found without cloth. The necessity of the navel being cut and the infant being washed at birth is self-evident. Rubbing the baby with salt either toughened the skin or guarded against infection. And binding the arms and legs and swaddling clothes um, for the purpose of 40 days or for 40 days to six months was believed to encourage the child to grow straight. By casting the infant into the open field in verse 5, the parents allow for the legal adoption by another. The term thrown out is found in other biblical contexts of child abandonment. See Genesis chapter 21, verse 15, Exodus chapter 1, verse 22, and metaphorically speaking, Psalms chapter 22, verse 10. In verse 5, the Bible also says that the parents abhorred her, which involves a formal act of renunciation. This verb is used elsewhere in connection with the covenant. See Leviticus chapter 26, verses 2, 15, 30, 43, and 44. When Israel spurns God's statute, God abhors Israel in return. Conversely, when Israel obeys God's statutes, God promises not to abhor. See Ezekiel 26, verses 11 and 44. The parents' abhorrence of Jerusalem or their child therefore constitutes a formal rejection of any legal responsibility for the child. When God passes by and sees the infant flailing in her own blood and declares, live, the reference to blood establishes God's full legal adoptive claim and responsibility over the child whose parents had renounced their claim and abandoned the child at birth. However, despite the fact that God claimed the child for his own, he did not raise her. Rather, she grew up in a state of liminality as suggested by her nakedness. The text also implies that the child remained in a bloody state because there was no reference to her being cleansed of blood until her marriage. In the Ezekiel chapter 16 text, Jerusalem is representative of all of Israel, and God's favor transformed Jerusalem from her humble, hated state, struggling in her own blood, weak, poor, and near death, to thriving like a plant 
in the field. God pronounced the sentence of life on the child who had been sentenced to death. And under God's care, and Jerusalem, uh, Jerusalem became large, strong, and mature. She became beautiful, and as she became, as she came into young adulthood, her breasts were formed and her hair grew. Now, as she came into young adulthood, this hair is not just the hair on her head, but metaphorically, the young woman's pubic hair as she as she passed the age of innocence and arrived as sexual maturity yet she was still naked and bare meaning although she grew and matured she was not so self-sufficient that she no longer needed god because she lacked wealth and the benefits of culture and civilization as the world saw her in verses 8 through 14, God says, I passed by you again and looked on you. You were at the age for love. I spread the edge of my cloak over you and covered your nakedness. I pledged myself to you and entered into a covenant with you, says the Lord God, and you became mine. God treasured her. He says, then I bathed you with water and washed off the blood from you and anointed you with oil. I clothed you with embroidered cloth and with sandals of fine leather. I bound you in fine linen and covered you with rich fabric. I adorned you with ornaments. I put bracelets on your arms and chains on your neck, a ring on your nose, earrings in your ears, and a beautiful crown upon your head. You are adorned with gold and silver, while your clothing was a fine linen, rich fabric, and embroidered cloth. You had choice flour and honey and oil for food. You grew exceedingly beautiful, fit to be a queen. Your fame spread among the nations on account of your beauty, for it was perfect because of my splendor that I had bestowed on you, says the Lord God. Wow. So when God passed by again, he saw that she had reached sexual maturity. He said, you were at the age for love. And the Bible says that God married her, covered her nakedness with his cloak. See Ruth chapter three, verse nine as a reference and pledged himself to her and entered into a covenant with her. Now, remember her, her is metaphorically Jerusalem and Jerusalem is representative of all of Israel. So this covenant is a symbolic representation of God's covenant with Israel. And it is only at this point that God activates his legal claim over the girl, Jerusalem, because in verse eight, he says, verse eight says, God pledged himself to her, entered into covenant with her. And he says, you became mine. He claimed her. So now God provides for her in ways that her parents 
failed to from the time of her birth. Verses 9 through 13 describes how God cared for and generously adorned the woman, the mature woman, metaphorically Israel. For the first time, God, having bathed her with water, washed off the blood from her and anointed her with oil, no doubt fragrant oil. Then God adorned her as a bride in the finest rich fabric and embroidered cloth, sandals of badger skin and gold and silver, all kinds of jewelry, and placed a beautiful crown on her head. She received choice flour and honey and oil for food. And the Bible says that she grew exceedingly beautiful, fit to be a queen. So God provided richly for the woman or Israel's every need. The vocabulary used to describe the girl's adornment is rich. The verses are replete with specialized terminology, first for the adoption and then for the adornment, but not for a real woman, rather for the city of Jerusalem. Notice how the term of the woman's clothing appear elsewhere in scripture, only in descriptions of the tabernacle and temple. The cloth is used for tent covering. The badger's skin is the same as the material used in the covering of the tabernacle. See Numbers chapter 4, verse 6. The gold and silver for the vessel and the flour, honey, and oil are offered as sacrificial offerings. As such, the metaphor involved the personification of a city by them. In short, Jerusalem, the bride of God, is clothed with garments that clothe the sanctuary and is fed with the food of his offering. Because of God's generous love and care, Israel excelled in beauty and was raised to royalty status. They became famous among the nations, and it was all because of God's splendor that he had bestowed upon them, not of themselves. Thus, here is Jerusalem's beginning. Born of her enemies, she is rejected and mistreated from the very beginning. But God assumed a double responsibility for her, first by allowing her to live, and secondly, by entering into covenant with her. As such, Jerusalem has neither identity nor existence apart from God's assumption of his obligations. However, this resolve on God's part does not heal Jerusalem's originary pain. Having been abandoned by those who should have loved her, Jerusalem is unable to form any lasting loyalties. She spurns God's gifts, continually seeking love from partners who will only use her and then destroy her, recapitulating her primal narrative over and over again. She ironically fulfills her parents' death wish, and her life ends as it began, exposed bloodied, and humiliated. The metaphor of Jerusalem as an infant dependent on God's care as an adoptive parent captures an intimate dimension of God's relationship with his people. This care for the infant strikes us as a beautiful portrayal of God's love. However, 
the betrayal of human beings as dependent on divine care undercuts other biblical emphasis on spiritual growth and maturity. If we are dependent on God, then we are no more responsible for our actions than a newborn is. As believers, we must consider if there is a way to conceptualize dependence on God without necessarily remaining in a state of spiritual immaturity. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Broken Vessels, Mended and Whole. If this ministry has been a blessing to you and you want to support it, we have several ways in which you can do that. First, via the Tidely app at Broken Vessels, Mended and Whole. Second, at Givelify, that's G-I-V-E-L-I-F-Y.com. You may donate to Broken Vessels hyphen Mended and Whole, or you may mail whatever gifts of love you feel led to give to Bro- Broken Vessels Mended and Whole. We are a 501c3 nonprofit religious organization located at P.O. Box 34637, Los Angeles, California, 90034. Please join me next week as we continue our Bible study on the book of Ezekiel right here on Broken Vessels, Mended and Whole. And don't forget to check in with me on Facebook Live at Evangelist Janice, that's J-A-N-I-S, Nelson, today at 12 noon Pacific Daylight Time. In the meantime, take good care and may God continue to bless you. Amen. Mm-hmm. <laughs>